Oftentimes when people come to me <clears throat> with a question, they'll usually start the conversation by saying, hey, Mike, I've got a question for you. And a lot of times I'll interrupt them right away, right there, and say, Jesus. And they'll look at me and maybe we'll both chuckle. And what I'm meaning is Jesus is the answer to your question. Now, I realize it can be details that he, we might have to search for, but I think there's way more truth in that when I say that to people than they believe. They, don't, they think I'm just joking around. And I'm not really joking around, but part of me is sometimes stalling so that the Holy Spirit can get my attention and give me an answer that makes sense besides Jesus. But Jesus is the answer to so many issues in our lives. And I think as Christians, new Christians or old Christians, we need a fresh revelation of Jesus, who he is, on a regular basis. We live in a world where we don't get a lot of encouragement in that direction. As a matter of fact, we get pointed in the other direction by most of the world. But the reality is, Jesus and a fresh revelation of him can impact us in so many practical ways in the way that we just live our lives day to day. Paul, in his letter to the church in Colossae, the Colossian church, seems to be addressing some issues. And we talked about this last week that the issues aren't laid out specifically, but when you look through what he is saying in writing this letter, we can kind of figure out there's a whole bunch of things that the church was maybe getting uh, mixed up with. It was kind of like they were mixing religion, pure Christianity, and then they were adding some things from Judaism, both from the mystical side of Judaism and the, the legalistic side of Judaism. Uh, it seems that there was an influence from the Gnostic or the early Gnostic religion belief system that was taking place. But it's so interesting, and I think we can learn from this. Whatever the things were, whatever the problems were, if we're assuming there were some, whatever the problems were, he didn't start debating every issue. He didn't even point them out in this whole letter specifically. He just started talking about Jesus. He started reminding people about Jesus revealing Jesus to them in a clear, clear, clear way that would hopefully clarify any of the problems that there may have been. And he goes through, and as I said last week, what we see in Colossians is probably the clearest, clearest teaching you're going to find in any of the letters to about the doctrine of Jesus Christ, of who he is. And the things that he addressed lay things out for us really so clearly. The title of the message is simply Colossians, Christ Alone. That's the series we're doing. And this morning, the title is Foundational Truths About Jesus. Foundational Truths About Jesus. Truths that we hopefully all have heard. Hopefully we all know them and hopefully we all believe them. But I do think we need a regular update, encouragement, fresh revelation of who he is. They were adding some things, just a very brief review. You know, the Gnostics and the, Judea, the Jews, Jewish people, the Pharisees, the Jewish people, the Jewish religion, it looks like in this letter that they must have been enforcing or trying to enforce some things on the church. Some of the legalism, you know, honoring certain Sabbaths, honoring certain new moons. They were trying to institute the way it appears, some of, of the restrictions on diet, what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat. Uh, circumcision, they were trying to throw that in, bring that back in. They were trying to do a number of these things. Angel worship, and kind of the, the, not only the Gnostics, but the Jewish people, there was a little bit of this angel worship, this mysticism creeping in. The Gnostics in particular saw 
the supreme being God and from him emanating other spiritual powers, levels and tiers of angels, if you would. And Jesus was somewhere in those levels or tiers and maybe even at the very top, but they did not consider him God. They did not consider him divine. They had a lot of confusing. They didn't even consider him necessarily truly flesh. Therefore, the resurrection appeared, the death, of, death and resurrection appeared to be a death and a resurrection, but it really wasn't. Mysticism creeping in. All of these things appear from what Paul writes in laying out these foundational truths about Jesus. All of these things seem to be creeping in. And one of the real problems with this, when we start to diminish in any way the supremacy of Jesus Christ, in any way, we are diminishing his qualifications to be our Lord and Savior. And you can imagine Satan would love to do that. He wants to do anything he can to diminish the power of Jesus Christ in our lives, even after we're saved. Anything he can do to keep us bound in our old thinking or traditions or mix things in. And that appears to be really what was happening. They weren't, you know, he wrote this letter to believers, he called them believers. The church had truth. And we see this even today. And sometimes we are a little quick to judge groups because we look at it and all we see and point out is the air. There may be truth there. So he's talking to believers, but they were, they were trying to be force-fed this mixture that would diminish not only who Jesus Christ is, but also diminish the power and authority that we have as in believers because of Jesus Christ. And no matter what happens, when they are coming in, and, and, and the, the, the dangerous thing about this, a lot of these deceptions or false teachings, whether they be theological doctrines that are getting twisted and distorted, or the lies that the enemy may be talking to you and me individually, whatever they are, how, whatever they're saying to us, diminish that power and authority we have in Christ. And diminish his superiority. And that's what we're going to be dealing with this morning. We're going to be looking at what I, and you could probably break this up in different ways, but I looked through these few verses. Uh, verses we're in chapter 1, starting in verse 15, and we're going to go through verse 29. And it's not going to be a super you know, breakdown of every single verse word by word. That's not my goal. But I want us to see what I think are five foundational truths that Paul is refreshing their memories with to make sure there's no mixture. Because as I said, sometimes this mixture comes packaged in such a way it's attractive to us individually and attractive to churches. I mean, if we would step back sometimes and look what's being taught in some churches under the guise of being biblical, it's crazy. It's packaged well, looks good, sounds good, just enough truth in there to tickle our ears and draw us to it, but it's crazy. And you and us could, have be, could be Christians who have been Christians for many, many years, and all of a sudden we, we start hearing that voice of the enemy in our mind starting to lie to us, but there's just enough truth in his accusations to get our attention, and we start to believe those lies instead of who Christ is and what he has done for us. And we can slip into a bondage even as believers. And we certainly don't want to do that because Christ died for that freedom that abundant life available to all of us. 
So the first one, that's one I want to look at are these five basic truths as I see them. It starts in verse 15. And I'm going to put most of these scriptures on the board so I know it's more than we usually put up there, but I want you to see them as we go through them. Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creatures. Now, we need to understand a little bit, and there will be a couple different times in here where I'm going to try to bring out the Hebrew or the Greek meaning. Not to just confuse us, but I think it brings real clarity to some of the things that are translated into English that we lose. When we look at this, the image of, what does that mean, the image of? You know, if we take a picture of somebody and we show it around, what are we seeing? We're seeing an image. And that's one of the definitions that we can use for this word that's in the, in the Greek. The word, the word is icon. And this word can have that meaning, simply a picture, you know, or you, or you look at, you know, a father and his son or a mother and a daughter, and we, oh, God, they're the spitting image of their father, spitting image of their mother. What does that mean? They look like that. They look like them. But as it doesn't go beyond just that appearance of being very, very similar. Or this word can also mean something way beyond that. It means it's showing the totality of that who that person is. When it says Jesus is the image of the Father, image of God, the divine nature of God is in him. The excellence of morality is in him. It doesn't, he just doesn't look like, I mean, you know, he's the invisible God, right? How can Jesus show us physically the invisible God? He can't. So the image there we're talking about isn't, gee, he looks like Jesus, whatever we think Jesus looks like. It means he is God in the flesh, the divine nature, the, the, the perfect morality. It's him as who he is. And it says the firstborn of all creation. And some people take that and look at it. Well, he's the firstborn. I wonder who the secondborn is. And there's some dumb Christian cults out there that would say, that, oh, he's just one of many sons of God. No, he's not. He's, the firstborn is a Jewish phrase, a Jewish phraseology. When it's used in the Jew, and you'll see it in a number of different places in the Scripture, it uses that, the firstborn of God. And what that phrase means in the Jewish phraseology is he is the eternal, eternal preexistence of, and he's the cause of all things. The firstborn, he was eternal. So a Jewish would hear that phrase being used, and when we see it throughout other places in Scripture, we might read that and go, I wonder what the heck that means, really. The Jewish mindset of that time, that's what it would have meant. He is preexistent. Preexistent. He is the cause of everything. He is the firstborn of all creation. And then Paul goes on, and he will amplify these truths as he goes through this to give us a little bit better understanding of that. But that is the first thing I think he's addressing. This is who he is. He is God. He is divine. He pre-exists. And he'll elaborate on that. And he'll elaborate on his divinity. The second truth, I think, is found in verses 16 and 17. It says this, For by him all things were created, things in heaven, things in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and him, in him all things exist or are held together. I, I, the, that verse just intrigues me so much. All things are created by him, for him. I got a text from one of our librarians in the church here 
who's actually studying this as we're going along with me, he says, Mike, it seems a little confusing here that we're saying Jesus did this, but in Genesis 1.1 it says what? In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. He says, doesn't that seem a little bit like a, a contradiction? Well, as we go through the Scripture and look at it in totality, no, we can understand what it means, but we don't even have to do all of that. This is where if we understood the word God that is used there in the Hebrew is Elohim. Elohim. Guess what? That's plural. Elohim is plural. The singular is Eloah. Eloah. So when you're looking at Genesis, right off the get-go, God. Elohim. Plural. And then all of a sudden we can go back and look in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1 and it says, let's create, let us create man in our image. Well, wait a minute. How did it get plural right away? It didn't. It was plural from the beginning, verse 1 of Genesis. And in Genesis then we do see the Holy Spirit introduced as the Spirit of God floats over the waters. But we don't see Jesus clearly pointed out. But boy, in the New Testament, it's all made crystal clear. And it starts here in Colossians 1.16. Jesus preexisted before all of creation. He is sovereign. He is supreme. In, in John chapter 1, the first 14 verses actually, but I'm just going to pick and choose after the first three, it says, in beginning was the Word. Okay, I wonder what that means. And the Word was with God. Hmm. And the Word was God. Okay. Does that mean he had a Bible? Uh, no, right? Of course not. So what's the word? We go on. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, whoever this word is, all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has ever been made. And then go to verse 10. It says, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world rejected him, didn't recognize him. And then in verse 14, it finally clearly, tell, clearly tells us if we had any doubt whatsoever, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is the Word? Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. Elohim, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Plural. Three God. Three in one. One God. Three aspects of His powerful truth for us. And when you're thinking about who He's writing this letter to and why He's stressing this so strongly, He is the Creator God. He's not one of the angels. He created them all. He's not one of the ways to, to get to God. He's not a mediator like all the other angels may be mediators between God and man. No, he is the mediator between God and man. He is the only one. Everything else was created by him. And then it says not only was it created by him, it was created for him. For him. For his glory. For his pleasure. For whatever purpose he desired it to do. Whatever purpose. Whether it's a tree or a pebble, an angel, or you and me, he created it all for his own purpose. Wouldn't you love to know why he created flies and mosquitoes? Someday. For his purpose. Everything. And he's telling this to a group of people over here that are trying to throw some mixture into pure Christianity. And he's speaking it so clearly to them. He created the heavens and earth. Forget about all these angels, powers, and principalities being something equal to Jesus or he's just one of the group. No, he's above them all. He's above them all. He created them all for his purposes, for himself. 
And the part that I spent way too much time this week thinking about, not only the fact that he created all things, but by him all things are held together. All things are held together by him. When we think of all of the laws of science, all of the laws of physics, all they really are are pictures of some of God's attributes, his character, the law of gravity. He's holding it together. The reason it works is it's him. You know, I got on a rabbit trail. I promise I won't go very deep with this one for you guys. <laughs> but this is me. This is that science thing in me. Think about it. <clears throat> Human beings are approximately 99.9% empty space. Now you know I'm nuts. <laughs> Everything is made up of atoms. All matter is made up of atoms. The nucleus is tiny, like tiny. Protons, super tiny. Electrons, super tiny. And between them all is what? Empty space. Physicists and scientists are still trying to be certain of what holds the whole thing together. If you know anything about science, in the nucleus of an atom, there's protons. That means they're all positive charges. How many of you know what like charges do? They repel one another. Why doesn't that atom blow up? Uh, they don't know for sure. I do. God. Simple. Jesus. I told you, he's a good answer for just about every question. Jesus. Somehow Jesus is holding it all together. The laws of physics, the laws of science, the only reason they work is that Jesus is making them work. At least that's what the Bible is telling me. It's all held together. It all exists and remains because of him. In Hebrews verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, one more scripture that I like here that says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if you just meditate on some of these verses, you end up just shaking your head going, unbelievable how amazing God is. The chair you're sitting on is being held together by him. <laughs> Weird, huh? Weird. It's 99.9% .9 space, empty space. Believe me? Oh, man. Well, I hope you believe me when I tell you Jesus loves you, okay? <laughs> Go home. Study this. When people say, I don't believe in God, I believe in science, and I say, then you don't know science. Because it doesn't work without God. It doesn't work. We didn't come out of the primordial mud. Nothing goes from chaos to order. It all goes from order to disorder or chaos. It doesn't work. It's easy. Unless you don't want to believe. Okay, there's my little tangent. Man, that went further than I wanted. That was number two. The third truth. He is truly a physical body. Now, for us, we go, well, yeah, duh. He walked the earth for 33 years. We get it. He was born of the Virgin Mary. We get it. But all of a sudden, this false teaching, this mystic teaching, this mysticism starting to creep into the church. So Paul says, I'm going to crush that. All they need to know is more about Jesus. All they need to know about Jesus. Colossians 1, 18 and 19. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the church. He is the source of the church. It's like a river, the head of the river where the river began. He is that for the church. He is the head. He is the source of the church. And then it goes on and says, he is the beginning and the firstborn, there's that firstborn word again, from among the dead. Firstborn from among the dead. I'll come back to that in just a second. 
so that in everything he might have the supremacy. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. I mean, each one of these verses could be about three, four sermons, each, each verse. But when I look at this, the head of the body, he is the source. And it talks about him being the firstborn from the dead. First of all, he physically had to die, right? A spirit wouldn't die. So he's kind of subtly saying, this was flesh and bone. Jesus was all man. And then at the end of the verse, he says, all the fullness of God, the divinity of God, dwelt in him. And it gave God the Father great pleasure that it all dwelt in him. But then it talks about this firstborn from the dead. How many of you know Jesus was not the first human being raised from the dead? How can that statement be true? He is the firstborn from the dead because he is the first person ever raised from the dead who never died again. Never died again. The only one. For now. He's the only one raised from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. He has supremacy in all things, and he just keeps reiterating this over and over in verse after verse, that he is supreme. And that physical death, physical man, trying to do away with any of this mixture, that somehow he was spirit. You know, one of the, one of the things, they, the Gnostics in particular, they separated all matter. So there was matter, the physical matter, and then there was spirit or thought. And he said, no, no, he was both. He was both. The fullness of God to dwell in him. Please the Father. All that the Father was, all of what he was, all of what he is, is in Jesus. And it gives the Father great pleasure to declare that truth. So God is a physical man with the fullness, the deity, the divinity of God the Father in him. All man, all God. To us, a lot of this stuff seems, I hope, seems basic. Got to remember, they didn't have a New Testament like we do. You know, this church had probably been in existence for maybe 14 to 16 years. That's it. And they hadn't necessarily had any of the apostles there teaching them. We saw last week, it looks like the Apostle Paul never ever been there. So there was stuff creeping in. The fourth one, critical one, big one, the source of peace with God. He is the only source of peace between God and man. There is no other. Starting in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. This is a continuation of verse 19 where it said, for God was pleased to have all the fullness of himself dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and totally free from accusation. Free from accusation. Doesn't mean the devil's not going to try. He's going to try to accuse you with all kinds of things. He's going to try to condemn you. He's going to try to get you to disqualify yourself. But we are free from accusation in the sense if we know the truth and stand on the power and authority of Jesus, those are lies. We know who we are. We're children of God, holy and righteous in His sight because of the blood of Christ. That's who we are. Yeah, we screw up. But God doesn't see that. He sees us through Jesus' blood. And He talks about He through the blood of Christ, 
the physical blood. See how he keeps hammering certain issues over and over to prove again that he was physical. He was not just a spirit. He keeps going there. And then he talks about reconciliation. That word alienated from God is an interesting word. What it really can mean in the Greek is you're transferred from one thing to another. When Adam sinned, every single one of us have been born alienated from God. We were transferred at birth. We were born into the kingdom of the enemy, the kingdom of Satan, the prince of this world. But now through the blood of Christ and accepting that gift of salvation, we who were alienated are no longer alienated. We have been transferred back into the kingdom of God. A total change. Total difference. Transformation. The primary difference between a believer and a non-believer isn't just forgiveness of sin. I mean, that's a pretty great, huh? Our sins are forgiven. But that's not the primary difference. The primary difference is there is a complete change of status. We are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We are no longer children of darkness. We are no longer alienated, living in that kingdom. We have been transferred to his kingdom. We are now children of the light, children of God. Amazing. It only happens because of forgiveness of sin, but that's the goal. That's the outcome of that. And we are presented holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Some of us need to really grab them, those last two, three words. Free from accusation. The enemy is a liar. He's a deceiver. He is a counterfeit. But he's pretty good at dressing it up and putting it in a package that is acceptable to us. That even looks attractive to us sometimes. But in the area of accusation, he's really good. It seems like he's got a pretty decent memory. He can bring up those things that I did a long time ago. I even bring some things up I did yesterday. But he brings them up accusing, condemning, trying to bring guilt, shame upon us. And the reality is, all of that was dealt with at the cross of Jesus. His shed blood. He sees us holy and righteous. There's accusations can come, but we are not being condemned by Satan's accusations in any way, shape, or form. We need to grab a hold of that truth as Christians. Now again, man, Jesus is the answer. All those things that we feel are holding us back. Know who Jesus is and what he's done. They can't hold us back. Can't hold us back. And the last truth here is, is amazing to me, and I try to put myself in the Apostle Paul's mind. I have a great imagination. But I try to put myself in his mind and think about this mystery being revealed to him, how it had to rock his world. It had to totally rock his world. Matter of fact, it rocked his world so much it became a primary motivator for his whole life from that moment on. When we look at verses Starting in uh, verse 25, it says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. He's reminding them he was called by God, not by man. Has nothing to do with man. Which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery, 
which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to His saints. You may remember from last week I talked about the Gnostics elevating knowledge as a major way to get saved, knowing enough that this wisdom, but it was only for an elite few. If you weren't the elite few, you never could get enough wisdom. Paul's making a point here. This mystery now has been revealed to all his saints, to everybody. It's for everybody. He says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the, of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There was a mystery that the Old Testament saints didn't know. They didn't understand. It was not revealed to them. One thing I take from that is sometimes God doesn't reveal to us everything we need to know or want to know. But he didn't reveal this to them, the Old Testament saints. And when he looked at this, he says, now it's my will to reveal this to all the saints. We're going to reveal this in the New Testament. We're going to reveal this under the New Covenant. We're going to reveal this through Jesus Christ. This mystery of the ages that Moses didn't know, Abraham didn't know, go right on down the list of the superstars of the Old Testament, and they didn't know this, but we do. Because he willed for us to know it. And we need to understand a mystery in a biblical sense is not a riddle. How many of us like riddles sometimes? Well, we figured it out, but I solved that mystery. No, that's not how it works in a biblical sense. A, a, a mystery in the Scriptures can only be solved by revelation. Revelation from God. It tells us that God says, it is now my will to reveal this to all the saints, to everyone. I'm going to read from Ephesians 3, and I think I put this on there too. <clears throat> Ephesians 3, Ephesians and Colossians, if you haven't read both of them recently, you'll see they're sister letters. Um, the same guy delivered them from Paul in his Roman jail. But in, in Ephesians 3.3, 3, it says, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I read before in brief. And then I'm going to jump to verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Verse 9, And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Hidden for ages. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. There was in accordance with the eternal purpose. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose, purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This mystery was planned before he created the earth, created anything. And then it was contained and held as a mystery all through the Old Covenant, all through the Old Testament. But now it's being revealed. And that mystery is what? There's a number of things that you can piece together. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Christ in you. Can you imagine an Old Testament? We're going to have the Messiah living in us by the Holy Spirit. Wow, that'd blow your mind. They'd think you were a cult or something. But the mystery that the people that were not God's people are now can become God's people. That God's chosen people is not just the Jewish people. It's being opened up to all the Gentiles. It's being opened up to all mankind. They will, have, they will be joint heirs with Jesus Christ just as the Jews were. You and I are joint heirs with Jesus Christ just as the Apostle Paul and the other disciples are. We are joint heirs with Christ because of what Jesus did on the cross. And this was a plan set in place before the foundations of the world were ever created, but finally revealed to us, New Testament saints. Can you imagine? This is where my imagination goes with Paul. Knowing who Apostle Paul was before he was Paul, while he was Saul, this brilliant theologian, Jewish guy who had sat under the best teachers of the Jewish word back then, and he was protective of that Jewish religion and the Jewish law, and faithful in following the law. He was so faithful that he became the great persecutor of the, Catholic, of the Christian church. Great persecutor of the church. When God finally got his attention, he was on the way to Damascus to persecute the church more. Throwing him in prison. And then all of a sudden, this mystery is revealed to him. Somehow, the Lord broke through. The scales were removed from his eyes. His ears were opened. His heart was opened. And God showed him the mystery. And he said, Paul, you're going to carry that mystery to the Gentile nations. Boy, talk about a mind bender. Really? You've got to be kidding me. First of all, if I'd have been him, I would have fallen to the ground in guilt and shame, like, oh, woe is me. Look what I've done. All under the cross. Paul, those who have been forgiven much, love much. I can imagine what goes through, went through Paul's mind as he began to understand what was about to take place. And part of that mystery is the hope of glory is Christ in me. You know, we can do all these wonderful things for the Lord thinking we're going to bring ourselves some glory. It isn't going to work. Our hope of glory is Christ in me. That's it. It's the only source. And I'm going to close with verses 28 and 29. Paul writes, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. There's his little poke at the wisdom thing again. We're going to teach him in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. The mystery for every man is to know and understand. That's his goal. That we would all know, we would all understand the word wisdom, it's not for an elite few. It's for everybody. We all can know this truth. And this revealed misery, mystery is the thing that so amazed Paul that it drove his ministry. It says he worked, he strived, he labored to spread this good news. It's what we should be doing. We should be doing the same thing as Paul did, striving and laboring to share this mystery, that it's for all people. It's not just for an elite few. 
Doesn't matter what your life has been. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter where you came from. None of that matters. Doesn't matter what continent you're born in, what color your skin is. It doesn't matter. This mystery is available for all to know. And that mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that we are made holy and righteous. We are transferred from that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. There is no greater mystery that we should be sharing with the world who needs to know. And this is what drove Paul. Labored and strived to spread the word. I believe those five truths, and you can break it into more pieces if you want, but if those five truths, foundational truths about Jesus and what he's done are fresh in our mind and our heart continually, man alive, it will change the way we live. It will change the freedom that will exist in our lives. It will change the way we deal with relationships. It will change the way we deal with the accusations of the enemy. It will change, should change, our fear of sharing the good news of the gospel with other people. All of that changes. But the reality is we first need to be transferred from one kingdom to another. Some of us here may still be in that kingdom of darkness and not even realize it. You know, unless there's been a personal decision in our lives to acknowledge our sin, acknowledge there's no way we could be good enough for God in our own strength, and accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross, His only Son, His only begotten Son, that He died in our place, died in our place. We accept that gift and surrender our lives to Him, to live for Him. The moment we do that, we have been transferred from that, that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Children of darkness, children of Satan, to children of God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we continue through this book of Colossians, we, we really are able to grasp these truths that Paul is trying to make so evident, so, evident, so clear, clarifying confusion. God, that it would give us a greater ability to discern truth, it would discern counterfeit, that it would a greater ability to recognize the lies of the enemy when they come our way, and that the authority of Christ in us would give us the grace to overcome in every situation. Lord, I pray it would also be a motivator in our lives to share the good news of Jesus with other people, to see the kingdom advance. Lord, I pray that even this morning, if there is anybody here who has never made that commitment at a personal level, accepted the gift of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that he died on our behalf, on my behalf, that today would be the day they would accept that and be transferred from that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And I pray, Lord, as we go our separate ways now today, that we go as your church, as an army, equipped by your Holy Spirit, to advance the kingdom, protect us, watch over us, and give us the grace to obey as we hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen.